0: Hey, this is Buck Sexton, and you're listening to the Tudor Dixon podcast, part of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton podcast network.
3: Welcome to the Tudor Dixon podcast. I'm Tudor Dixon and super excited to have you join us today. I love bringing exciting new people into your world. And today is no different. Although I think many of you have probably heard great things about Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa. You until you actually spend time with her, you can't really grasp how incredible she is. There are some folks in life who make a really strong impression on you right away. And Governor Reynolds was one of those people for me because she cared. I know that seems incredibly simple but you can actually feel her heart the minute you engage with her. And I think that's incredibly special. I don't think I met a single person at her level on the campaign who immediately offered me their assistance the way she did. And certainly she's been in the news quite a bit lately with all of the presidential candidates visiting her wonderful state. And some people have even floated her name as a vice presidential candidate. I know she's not talking about it or asking for it, but once you get to know her, you will understand why so many people find that idea intriguing and i do myself i'm honored to introduce to you the 43rd governor of iowa governor kim
4: reynolds governor welcome to the podcast oh hi Tudor. first of all congratulations this is exciting i'm really happy to hear that and it is an honor to be with you so Thank thanks you. for giving me the opportunity
3: Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on. And you do have quite a few presidential candidates visiting Iowa. So I wanted to ask you about that because everyone has a different personality. It's certainly interesting to have folks like that visit your state. It kind of uh, confuses things. There's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of people. So tell me a little bit about what it's like to host the different candidates.
4: Uh, well, I love it, first of all, um, it's, you know, we've done this for quite some time. We're the first in the nation caucus and it, it Iowans take it very, very seriously. So what I love about Iowans is they're engaged, they're very knowledgeable on the issues. And so we can almost always guarantee any of the candidates that are considering running a really good turnout because they want to be able to look the candidate in the eye. They want to learn a little bit more about their character. And it's really great for the candidate as well because it gives them the chance to really Hone their message to connect with Iowans to see what that's like to connect with somebody that uh, is informed and is asking the right questions, and so um, it, it and it's fun to, to start to build relationships. I mean, we connected right off. I mean, I loved your passion. I loved that you were so concerned what had happened with COVID uh, to to the kids and to the people in Michigan, the lockdowns, and just so I so I could say right back to you, your heart was it just was right there. And so I love the connection uh, and the friendship and the relationship that we were able to build. But the same thing happens when you're uh, hosting candidates uh, in the state, you get to know them um, and get to learn about, about kind of what their, what their vision is and what they're talking about. And then a lot of times, you know, the ones that don't, make it through and are the presidential candidate a lot of times Tudor, they get um, they're asked to be a part of the administration and you're able to connect back out on issues that impact the Iowans and that are the individual that we serve and so that's always been a really great um, opportunity and resource as well so it's it's fun it's we keep you busy um, you know we've had Nikki Haley in and we've had tim Scott in and I did a day with the uh, governor DeSantis and then we had uh, president Trump in on, on Monday. So, um, logistic wise, sometimes it's a little bit of a challenge, but, but I, we love it.
3: Well, I want people to know, I mean, I don't know if you're comfortable with me sharing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. When I met you, I, when you're running for governor, you meet a lot of governors. We went to all the RGA meetings, the Republican governors association meetings. You are now the chairman of the RGA, but at that point, um, you you were just walking through walking past and we i i had a friend that introduced me to you and the thing that struck me was you immediately said let me put my number in your phone this is really yeah. hard this is <laughs> it's really challenging you'll come across challenges and when you need to ask someone about them call me and that just okay. meant so much to me because people don't take that time i mean certainly you are a very busy But you knew that I was going through something. And as a woman, I know you mentioned that, too. You said, you know, there are different challenges you'll face as a woman. And you were just willing to talk to me about it. And I have to tell
4: you that meant a lot. Yeah. Well, it's so important, too, because there are different challenges. And I didn't have a lot of mentors uh, when I was running. And so I want to make sure, you know, that I'm there for other candidates. And I, you know, we want the best candidate running. But I'm always trying to encourage bright, articulate uh women because they first of all I think sometimes they have to be asked we just think we have to know everything before we even step into the fray we have to be perfect and it's just not the case you just step in there and you're going to be surprised at just the capacity that you have to do big and bold things and so um often as I'm traveling the state um I'm I'm watching and observing and if I see somebody that I think would just be a phenomenal candidate or you know I'll go up and say I don't know if you've ever thought about running before but I hope you do at some point and, um, I would be happy to sit down and talk to you about it or be a resource. Uh, and then if, here's the other thing. And I, and we, we could never connect, but we did several times. I just wasn't able to get up there, but we, we did connect on, uh, phone calls. Um, but, and then to support them when they do make the decision, you know, right. and to, to be there and to be a resource and, and to be supportive, uh, as they're, uh, once they do make that decision and step in.
3: I I think that I like what you said there because I think people look at folks that decide to run and they say, what makes you think you can do this? There's so many different aspects to running a state or, you know, even the presidential candidates. Why do you think you can do this? And what you said there is so important for people to understand when they are looking at different candidates that you're going to learn along the way. And it's the people you surround yourself with as well. That's important. And you, you were kind of in a unique position because you were a Lieutenant governor and then you were placed into the position of governor before you ran again. So you inherited this job when when the governor of Iowa was, uh, was appointed to be ambassador of China. And so that suddenly was thrust upon you and you had a lot of decisions to make, but you've done such an incredible job. And I want to go to something that is Kind of controversial across the whole country right now, because after COVID coming out of COVID, a lot of parents said, man, I really want to have a choice in education. And you are working on school choice in Iowa. You've passed that in Iowa. Tell me a little bit about that process and what that was like and, and how you handle it when people come up against you and say that this is not the right
4: choice. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's something I feel so passionately about, and it was just underscored after going through COVID. You know, it was the kids that needed that structure more than anything to be in the classroom, to have a safe environment, to, you know, I mean, they had a parent that was working to tell them to learn from home was just absolutely crazy. And I think even through it all, I mean, even before that, we were working on it, but parents just had a front row seat to some of the things that were being taught, even in the classroom as well. And um, so, so I, I had been working on school choice for three years. We enhanced um, charter schools. We uh, expanded open enrollment. But I, but the, the the school choice bill, I got through the Senate two years in a row, only to have it held up in the House. And it was so frustrating because I just we put a lot of work into it. I traveled the state, and I was hearing from parents who agreed with the fact that every parent should have that opportunity, not just those that have the resources. I mean, you know, they accuse me of not caring about children, but yet it's the individuals that need it the most that weren't able to take advantage of it. And so the first thing I did, Tutor, is I got involved in primaries, and I don't normally do that, but I was either going to be an enabler. Yeah, I was going to either be an enabler or I was going to step in and do what I could because the chair of the education committee in the house was opposed to it. And he was the one that was stopping it every year. And so uh, I got involved in nine primaries. We were successful in eight of the nine. Uh, I'm proud to say that the, the, the ninth um, primary, he actually supported and, and voted for the bill and probably is one of the biggest uh, proponents of it um, this year, um, getting it across the finish line. But but I just asked a simple question, uh, and it was really focused on that. I said, tell me your position on school choice, and if you think that every parent should have that choice. And if they uh, agreed with that, then I helped in any way that I could um, to get them across the finish line. And so we were able to get that done. But the other thing that I did that I think was really almost as important is it was more kind of almost a rural-urban issue. I heard from a lot of rural uh, legislators that this would destroy their schools and that they wouldn't be able to compete. And so I spent a lot of time meeting one-on-one with those rural superintendents. And I said, I know I'm not going to change your mind. I I get that, but I want to look you in the eye and I want to tell you that it's imperative that we have a strong, successful public school system. This is not going to destroy it. I believe with all my heart, it will elevate education overall, but what can we do? What are we doing that's inhibiting your ability to be innovative and to be competitive and to provide your students with the best possible education. And they talked a lot about Chapter 12, which is the regulatory piece of it. It was shall, 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 shall. And, you know, we always add. We never take off and ask if we would just relieve some of the burdensome regulations that they have so they could have a little bit more flexibility. And I said, yes, and we did that. And then the other thing they said is we can't be competitive, especially in rural Iowa, when it comes to our teacher salaries. And so we found some existing funds, um, quite a bit actually, it was $100 million that they were setting on, $320 million overall, that they can actually roll in, not into administration, but into teacher salaries to increase teacher salaries or use it to hire additional teachers. And I think that also helped some of my role. Uh, lawmakers feel a little bit more comfortable um, with it. So, But,
3: but that uh, is certainly what we hear, especially in yeah. Michigan, but across the country, is that if you pass school choice, that will hurt the public school system. And so the narrative that they use is that if you are pro school choice, then you are anti-public education. I think it's really important that you you pointed that out, that you actually were able to expand conversations on public ed by
4: talking about school choice. Yeah. And and same thing with the charter. That's a public that's through the public schools. And I started out with my condition of the state this year and said, you know, this the media and the unions drive this hysteria. And you know, when we passed and uh, you know, I signed into law my third tax cut, oh my god, state government was going to collapse. I mean, we were going to just destroy education, the world was going to cease to exist. When I got the kids back in the classroom in COVID, you know, I was going to kill the kids, I was going to kill the teachers. I got obituaries from teachers that came to me, but mostly it was the the, the unions that were driving the narrative and i would i've been able to point back to every single we passed collective bargaining reform in 2017 that really minimized the union's ability i mean they can only negotiate salaries and it's a three percent or a cost of living raise whichever is um, lower and they can they can bargain other things but those are they both both sides have to agree uh, we can't uh, paycheck protection was a part of it in 2017 and then they have to recertify every time they have to renew renegotiate a contract. Um, so we were able to kind of eliminate a lot of that too, but same thing. I mean, they just, all of the same accusations. And I just went through and, and kind of highlighted how at each, at each point, um, we proved them wrong. You know, our economy is growing. Uh, our revenues are higher, even with a lot of the, um, uh, you know, uh, issues that we're facing from an aggressive administration, uh, we're still doing really well in Iowa. And so I just told them, once again, we're going to prove the media wrong. Uh, and and, it, and that's what I think Tudor, they're so afraid of, is the more states that are doing this, that narrative that it's going to destroy the public school system is going to be proved untrue. And then I don't know what they have after that, because it's, we're going to be able to demonstrate with data that that's not true.
3: Well, I think in some cases, there is a fear that if you are a government school, you really are guaranteed that income. You don't have to compete. And so there are some areas, I mean, I know in Michigan, for sure, we have some school systems that have been consistently at about a 5% literacy rate. What is the motivation to increase that if you don't have any competition? And I think this is something that Republicans have been trying to say, but just parents have been trying to say, well, if I can't get it higher than 5%, give me the option to give my child a future. And that is really key to these kids'
4: lives. If you can't read, what what do you have? Yeah, and they can't just continue to pass them on. They have no accountability. There's no transparency. And what other area is is competition not a good thing? To your point, right, exactly. Right. You know, and so quit being fearful of that. We're going to help you get in there, but get in there, and you know, and and. And that's the other thing. If they know nothing, they understand the money. And so now, I mean, we passed, you know, said no to critical race theory. We've done parental rights and we've done all of that. But the best thing that we can do to elevate education, as you know, is to give parents a choice. And as those kids start to leave, they are going to have to look at how they're providing that education and either get in the game or they are not going to cease to exist. And so they do understand dollars and they do understand that they're going to have to up their game uh, if they're going to be able to keep the kids there. So that that is just overall we'll do more, I believe, to drive opportunities for these kids and to just set them up to be successful. That's our future. You know, well, you, we want to give them every opportunity.
3: Let's take a quick break. More with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds next.
1: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple
0: Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed.
3: Welcome back to the Tudor Dixon podcast. We continue our conversation with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. You definitely have been about making sure people have choice and people are successful and that there is opportunity for folks over government. And so in a way, I would say that you're really a proponent of smaller government and you're proving that with your latest proposal that I think is a 1500 page proposal to reorganize state government, but really make government smaller. So that scares people for some reason, whenever we talk about making government smaller people start to freak out that they're going to lose something explain how do you talk to people about this and assure them that you're not taking something away that this will actually give back
4: yeah it's actually streamlining the whole process i mean i feel sorry for listen take take for example we started by an mou and then we codified in the language this year the Department of Public Health and Human Services, and the amount of doors that an individual had to go through to try to get the services, to try to have the accountability, and to be able to serve them was ridiculous. You know, these individuals, these moms, these dads, you know, they're trying to survive and trying to put food on the table and do the best that they can, and they don't have the time to do that. We had over a hundred professional licensing functions that were spread over eleven different agencies. Uh, we had. 100 workforce programs that, again, were spread over a different one, 11 different agencies. That's not good government. There's duplication, and every time there's duplication, there's cost to the taxpayers, and which not, you know, it's too big, It's too ex- government's too big, it's too expensive, and it's too fragmented. And so in Iowa, I'm so proud to say it just passed, so it's on its way down to my desk. Oh, wonderful. Uh, we're gonna, yeah, we're going to take uh, the executive branch, uh, which I have control over, it had 37 executive branch. Agencies, crazy. I mean, we were bigger than every one of the surrounding states. Uh, when I and we're going down to sixteen, so thirty-seven down to sixteen, and wow. uh, we brought it. Yeah, we brought in a consultant to help us uh, go through this. We've been working on this since um, June of, of last year, so we've been very um, uh, strategic in how we did it. But here was the final kicker: when I found out that Illinois, we spent twenty-one hundred dollars more allocated as an expenditure. Per capita than Illinois, who is four times our size uh, of the four times the size of Iowa, and not really known for their conservative budgeting practices. Right, yeah. I mean, it was like underscore underscore. We are way out of line, and it had been forty years since we have done a system in a system wide enterprise um, uh, review, and so. Uh, I'm really excited. It's projected to save, and I think this is probably on the conservative side—about 214 million dollars over four years. Oh, wow! So it will it will save significant uh, money. We'll get that back to the taxpayers, and and I will be able to actually have a cabinet meeting where we can sit down and talk about strategies. And so I know uh, without hesitation that we are going to continue to streamline because I've seen it happen just in the conversations that we've had leading up to going from 37. Uh, down to 16. But, oh my goodness, you know, uh, the, 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 again, the hysteria and the pushback, the dent, you know, the other side, you know, right. I, they were like, I'm controlling, I'm being more controlling. I'm going, I said, I'm going from 37 down to 16. I don't know how you can say that. I can't, it doesn't right. Exactly. That's doing. the thing. You'll find a way to make working. it look bad. <laughs> so I, but um, so we now, I said, okay, team, I set them down and I said, we got it done. So now we got to we got to execute, but we've got a really good plan in place to, to move that through. And so I'm really excited. And then just real quick, um, we just have too much government overall. And so I knew that I had to lead by example and I needed to get our house in order before we would start to have that conversation with our local governments. Because if we want to be more competitive and continue to reduce the tax burden on Iowans, we just, we can't continue to fund government at the level that we are. And so hopefully I can lead by example and go talk to some local governments and start that process.
3: And, and I think that people are getting to know you. And as you talk, especially today, as the people are listening, they can see that you're just very reasonable. It's just very easy to talk to you. It's very easy to understand. And so I really believe that this is why so many people have floated the idea of you being on the ticket with someone oh. in 24. I mean, just honestly, is that flattering? I mean, what do you think of that when oh. people say that?
4: Oh well, okay. I'm going to tell you what I think. I mean, I I think it's great for Iowa. So I always come back to that perspective. Um, it's 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 just. And doing things like this, it helps kind of get Iowa on the map. A lot of times we're a small state in the heartland of America, and I feel like I'm up on the Capitol Dome, like, just waving my hands, say, look at what we're doing here. We've got great things happening. And, you know, they just tend to talk about the larger states. They tend to talk about Texas and Florida. And we have mimicked um, so many and led, honestly, on so many of the policies, whether it's election integrity reform or ESAs, you know, we led this year, and Sarah uh, Sanders is following in Arkansas. We've got Utah. You've got Greg. A lot of people following suit. Um, so so um, I, I, it, I think it's helping. Um, just people take a look at what we are doing in Iowa, and if that's part of the conversation, uh, I'm okay with that. But I'm really, truly, really focused on what we're doing uh, here. I got to keep cutting taxes because 15 of my governor colleagues have tax cuts in their proposal this year. So I've got to come, we got to come back um, next year and uh, continue to look for ways to bring that down. I'm trying to get to zero. Oh my gosh. And I think I just read where Michigan is repealing right to work.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? Uh, It's so sad.
4: 40 years. I mean, this mm -hmm. has happened. It's been 40 years since, since, I mean, it's just everybody's heading in the opposite direction. It's so sad.
3: It's it's terrible. I mean, we we have that we have, you know, where they're talking about taking away immunity for gun stores and gun manufacturers. These are things that I think that some of these bills go through and people go, "Oh, that sounds, you know, the their favorite term, common sense to me." But then you dig in and there's these other crazy things in there. I mean, imagine are we going to say that suddenly the potato chip manufacturers are are going to be held liable if you have a heart attack? Are you going to say that exactly. car manufacturers are going to be held liable if you have a car accident? I mean, this is some crazy stuff, but this is what they're, they are very good at twisting it into making people believe that you have to do this. And so removing right to work is really going to hurt the state of Michigan. And I think that Michigan and, and Iowa are similar. In the center of the country, it's very Midwestern. You really understand the average American person and what they need. And so I think that is also why there's such an attraction to the state of Iowa. But in Iowa, you're also very focused on mental health and especially children's mental health. That to Mm -hmm. me, I really want to get into with you because it was a big deal to me. I watched what my kids went through during the pandemic. And I tell this story because it was so shocking to me. I have four girls. And at the end of the pandemic, you know, we were in Michigan locked into our homes. And so people, the kids couldn't go out at all. And I I think that because I could go to the grocery store, I sort of forgot about the fact that the girls are really trapped together in the house. And my, my daughter, my oldest at the time, she was 10 and I was putting her to bed and she started crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, mom, I think this is what depression feels like. That hit our kids so much harder than we really Ever could understand. So, how are you looking at this differently in Iowa? Because we really, as a country, need to examine mental health and our kids' mental health.
4: Yeah, especially what we did, you know, what we did to them because it was just self-inflicted on them, and yeah. that's why we were one of the first uh, states to get our kids back in the classroom. And I, I even, you know, I did it by. By order, and then I had the legislature take it up and ran it through the legislature because uh, I knew that it would have more weight by doing that. I didn't want to keep the uh, the, the um, health order going for uh, any longer than i needed to because they can just you could you know the the governors use that as a way to really um hurt uh the people that they serve to really let government uh, step into areas that they shouldn't have done that um but but it's still it's still a need even though we got the kids back in and so i am really It's been a passion of mine from the very beginning. Uh, We work to get a a comprehensive adult mental health reform done. And then I recognize the fact that we didn't even have a children's health system. And what I found out is they've been talking about it. This is what they do. They like to talk about an issue. But never deal with it because then it goes it goes away, you know. Right. So they've been talking for twenty years about standing up a, ch- a children's mental health system, and I put a uh, task force together. It gave them a hundred days, asked them to, to to figure out how we can stand up a system so we have a continuum of care, and hopefully we can get these kids the services that they need early on, so that they can have every opportunity to have a healthy and a happy. Uh, life. And uh, we were able, so we we did gave the recommendations, and then I put it in bill form again and took it through the legislature to give Iowans the opportunity to weigh in and to make sure that everybody was heard and we were able to stand that up. And I want to tell you, uh, which just doesn't happen very often, it passed unanimously uh, in the Iowa legislature in both chambers, um, so I, I'm very proud of that too, but we've also, we've provided mental health parity for uh, telehealth, which was really important. We made our schools a site of service. And what that means is they can provide site um, uh, professionals and they can get reimbursed for it. Uh, that was something that wasn't done. And so we have some, um, therapist, or they can use telehealth to either one, but it's really been uh, a really positive thing, not only for the kids, but for the teachers, um, and, and, and the families, because the families are comfortable going to a school. And so, mm-hmm. and we're able to meet all the HIPAA rules. So our roles.
3: mom and dad involved in that, because I think that's yeah. been a oh, concern for sure.
4: Okay. Oh, we, oh, no, 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 for sure. We, we, we're very, very, they're driving it. They're the ones that are, um, and, and, and not all of them have it, but it's an option. It is, it's, it's gone very well in the schools that we've been able, um, to do it. Um, and then just, it's meant just some, um, training, some, put some dollars into training teachers so that they can identify the early warning signs. But yeah, so then we go to the other side of how they've kind of trying to take parents out of the child's education and, and on one of the decisions that are being made, um, on, that a parent should be making. And so this year we're putting in all kinds of protections to make sure that that's not happening uh, as well. And we did that with the mental health piece too. It has to be driven by the parent. It can't be, uh, you know, driven by the schools.
3: So the last thing I want to go over really quick with you is Republican Governors Association, because one of the things you said at the beginning was when someone's running you know, they can talk to other people. They're not doing this alone. And that was what I thought was so fascinating when I was running, because here we were able to meet and there's so much access. The governors at those meetings are so willing to sit and talk to you. That to me was amazing to think that these people who are so powerful are willing to sit with you and say, what questions do you have? And so when I was talking to folks across the state of Michigan, and they were saying, how how was it that these red states were doing different things during COVID? I was able to say, hey, I've talked to these governors and they were talking, they were communicating. So tell us a little bit about that, because I think people think everybody is doing this on their own and not communicating, but the Republican governors really do talk and we're making decisions together about a lot of these things
4: such a tight-knit organization. And to your point, you know, I've got the cell phones of all of them. So not only during COVID, and I mean, these were long days. I was out at the state emergency operations center. We started there early in the morning and worked late into night, into the night. And I would either take the call there or when I got home or on the way home. But at least twice a week we would do a late night conference call. Uh, I would say probably around 8 o'clock a lot of times because all the governors were doing press conference or still working on things, maybe sometimes seven thirty eight. or 8. A lot of times, Tudor, we would be on the phone for an hour and a half to two hours. And, you know, it was just it was hitting different stages at different times in different parts of the country. And to be able to get their feedback on what they were seeing, the data that they were collecting, where they were finding testing supplies, uh, how they were standing up, to, you know, testing opportunities, how, you know, we were keeping, you know, we pres- in I, we produced 10% of the nation's food supply. And so it was imperative oh, yeah. that I kept my processing plants up and going, but I wanted the employees to know that they were in a safe environment. So I needed some way to test, you know, so that when they went in, they felt comfortable and safe to be able to keep it open and to keep the food supply chain moving. But it was invaluable uh, to be able to have that resource, to have that open um, conversation and, you know, where you could, it was a safe zone too. You could be really honest about what you were seeing and what, what was working and what wasn't. And so, um, and, and that's just, that's just typical. We do it with the, what's happening at the Southern border, you um, You know, I have so much respect for Governor Abbott and then Governor Ducey, you know, trying to lead a state at the same time where your border is open and you just have millions of illegal migrants coming across the border, the drugs, the human trafficking. I I mean, I don't even know how— you know, good team. You said it earlier, you better surround yourself with the best and the brightest. But to be able to help with them, and we sent law enforcement down, we've had our National Guard down there, but a lot of coordination with all the governors uh, from that perspective as, as well. And just even um, if you've got a question about an issue that you're working on, you know, I would, Pete Ricketts, I would pick up the phone and I would say, Pete, how are you? Handled? And we worked really closely during COVID because we're so connected with the Omaha and the council bluffs area. And so we didn't want to make decisions that would, you know, hurt uh, his residents or mine because we were so connected. So our chief of staff and Pete and I were a lot of times just, hey, this is, I'm thinking about, re- I'm going to open the, the restaurants back up. This is wrong. we got to put our trust in same thing and just to kind of time it so that we were moving forward this,
3: um, I, I love this. I just have to interrupt because I love this, because I think that people listen to what the media was saying. And you have the media coming out and saying, oh, Governor Kemp is going to kill everybody. Abbott's going to kill everybody. This is outrageous. Florida is going to kill everybody. And And there was no discussion that these were actually data-filled conversations about what actually was happening. The, the the people who were in charge managing this were having those conversations back and forth. It was not willy-nilly discussions of, let's see if we open restaurants, what happened. You were watching every state and how this was moving across the country. And I think that's something people really have
4: never heard. Yeah, no, honestly, and then even when we brought in the test Iowa um, the new program that we were able to do it had a robust data collection. I could I could tell you down to the zip code where we were starting to see a flare up and then we could get in front of it quicker and just to be able to share that conversation or to have it start on the east and the west coast and then kind of move in and then it went across and you know, I mean, just the hysteria driven by the media. I you know, and we did a daily press conference and we were just honest with iowans here's where we're at and here's what we're seeing and this is what we're doing and um you know i i have people to this day tutor i know no matter where i go i have just every, people come up and say i never missed your press conference we went through it together we would stop everything and tune in and you know i i got choked up uh, at one of them i it must have been some really bad data and i was so mad at myself when I got done with the press conference because I felt like they needed to see their governor be strong and to be able to to deal with this. And I felt like I had let Iowans down and I had just the opposite. I had people calling in, sending texts, sending emails and just saying, we recognized at that point that you were an Iowan just like we were going through this together and and you're making the best decisions that you can make based on the data that you have. So you'll appreciate this because that wasn't the case with your governor at the time. But right. of this isn't mine. This isn't my natural hair color. So you know, I went up to the time <laughs> when the when the salons were shut down, and I said to my husband, I said, "Kev." you're going to have to color my hair. I said, I can't, you know, I, the, the, the stripe is getting wider and wider and, you know, I'm not going to break a rule. I'm not going to do something, you know, I'm, I'm going to abide by the same rules. And so boy, he went down and he Googled it and he did like a YouTube and he had gloves in the dish and we got the stuff. And, And so as he's trying to do it, I said, okay, now here's the bad news, Kevin. I'm going to have to take a picture of you and post (laughs) it because otherwise nobody will believe that I didn't have you do my hair. My number one post of all times of anything I've done was the fact that my husband agreed to color my hair and then let me take a picture of him and post it on Facebook. But, you know, I think Iowans knew that I I, – I, I was putting my trust in them. And if I did something, it was, it was based on the unknown at the time. And, but by gosh, whatever I did, I was going to, I was going to live under the same rules that I was asking them to do. So um, anyway, I, and, I and that's why they put, that.
3: <laughs> that's why they put their trust in you. And honestly, I, I know this is a sensitive subject, but that is why so many people have their eyes on you right now. And we're just watching to see what you do next, because I know you really care and I know you're really looking for the right solution. And I just love that. You said, Oh, yeah, I had a task force to put together and gave them a hundred days. And that's the type of thing that we want to hear. You have the team, you have the people working on this stuff. That's what makes you so unique. And the fact that you can connect emotionally, the fact that you can share a picture like that, that is truly being an American, and that's why we love you. So I just want you to know that I appreciate what you've done. I appreciate knowing you, and I'm so thankful that you joined me today on this podcast.
4: Thank you, and right back at you. So um, you keep being you, keep doing you, and just best of luck on your podcast. I know it's going to be a huge success. So thanks for giving me the opportunity.
3: Governor Kim Reynolds, thank you all for joining us today on the Tudor Dixon Podcast. For this episode and others, go to Dixon. Tutordixonpod- podcast.com. You can subscribe right there. Join me next time on the Tudor Dixon podcast and have a great day.
0: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics,